and welcome to Let's Be Better, a podcast where we have the hard conversations about politics, minority communities, and our world at large. I'm Hannah, and today is Saturday, September 12th of 2020. This week in review, we will be covering the fires out west, the Woodward tapes, and the death of Daniel Prude. Then after that, we have the question of the week, which is why do we have the two-party system in America? Thank you for joining me. So the first thing that we'll discuss is that half of the United States is literally on fire. Wildfire season is upon us again, and now the entire West Coast is currently engulfed in flames. There's a lot of photos coming out right now of ash mixing with snow, orange skies, and other post-apocalyptic looking things. So what exactly is happening, and why are these fires becoming so increasingly detrimental? Some of these major fires, specifically in California, were caused by a series of lightning strikes from last month. This fire season, 2.3 million acres have burned in California alone, making this the most devastating fire season in California's recorded history. Since these fires happened, surrounding states like Oregon, Colorado, and Texas sent their firefighters to battle flames in California, but now these states are also in flames themselves. Firefighters have been spread very thin across all of these states. This week in Washington state alone, 480,000 acres have burned. Oregon is approaching 900,000 acres burned. And so far, seven people have lost their lives to the fires. So why do these fires continue to worsen? Well, for the most part, experts agree that the reason for the severity of these fires is due to climate change. Winters are increasingly drier, and any leftover snow and water from mountain runoffs are being quickly absorbed by the vegetation earlier in the spring and summer. So now that we're into late summer and early fall, there isn't really enough moisture, therefore fires are starting more easily and also spreading faster. Jane Null, a meteorologist with the Golden Gate Weather Service, says, In years where we have below normal rainfall, we are more likely to have a greater amounts of acreage burn. That's the data. Past droughts have also led to an increase of dead brush and unhealthy forests. California had a really bad historic drought from 2012 to 2017, and that left 147 million dead trees behind in its wake. These dead trees have essentially become a tinderbox. Record heat waves are also contributing to these fires. Labor Day weekend brought record highs to California. For example, LA was a scorching 121 degrees. This extreme heat also leads to dry vegetation, which in turn leads to more fires that are more difficult to put out. According to NASA and the NOAA, the 10 hottest years globally since modern records, which began in 1880, have all been since 1998. Science is showing us that these heat waves are becoming more intense and more frequent. Right now, the USA is way behind on life-saving policies and measures. Many cities and states build in heavy fire-prone areas, putting those residents at risk and then making those houses more fuel for these potential fires. This also happens a lot in states like Louisiana and Texas as well, in places that are more likely to flood due to hurricanes and potential dam breakage. Max Moritz, a wildfire expert affiliated with the UC Santa Barbara, says, 
At this point, we've learned a lot about how to engineer homes and communities so that way they can be more survivable. But these lessons aren't being implemented fast enough. It's just more proof that our current government and the people that build these houses specifically care more about getting money than they do human lives. Furthermore, the cause of global warming is human behavior. The increase in global warming is leading to worse fires. And in the United States, we have been incredibly slow when it comes from steering away from fossil fuels, especially since Trump has become president. It's important to point out that Trump and his constituents encouraged the use of fossil fuels, drilling, and gas while discouraging the use of renewable sources of energy. Also, since March 6th, the Trump administration has offered nearly a quarter million acres of public lands and 78 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas leasing. To compare to the previous administration with Obama, wind power quadrupled its share of electricity production and solar power increased 40 times. From 2010 to 2016, jobs in the solar energy field went from 94,000 to 260,000. And then according to a 2019 Forbes article, quote, solar energy jobs have stagnated and dipped for the two consecutive years since the part, since the Department of Energy's initial report, with a loss of 10,000 jobs in 2017, followed by a further 8,000 in 2018. Although some job losses were foreseen as a result of the project finalizations in several states, the biggest contributing factor was President Trump's tariffs on solar panels. Donald Trump also said, if you, if you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations, your house just went down 75% in value. <laughs> and they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? So there's that. That's what our president thinks about green energy. And again, this all has to do with the fires because these fires are being made worse by global warming, which we are clearly not taking seriously. This next chunk is all from AmericanProgress.org. And this was a really good source because all of these claims, they link to the original articles. So again, all of my sources will be in the description. This is a really good one. In 2019, the Trump administration repealed and replaced the Clean Power Plan, or CPP, an Obama administration policy that would have required reduced emissions from power plants, incentivizing renewable energy growth in the process. An E2 analysis showed that the CPP, had it been implemented in 2016, would have created up to half a million new renewable industry jobs by 2030. The replacement plan under Donald Trump, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, would encourage far fewer renewable energy build-outs and no new jobs. In January of 2018, President Trump placed tariffs on imported solar cells and modules for the next four years, making solar energy development more expensive and less economically competitive, leading to job losses and project delays. And lastly, under the Trump administration, the U.S. Interior Department Bureaus of Land Management has failed to hold a single competitive lease sale on public lands for wind and solar, despite an Obama-era rule empowering the department to do so. Similar roadblocks have occurred offshore. In August of 2019, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management 
ordered an 11th hour sweeping environmental review of all proposed Atlantic offshore wind projects, delaying the vineyard wind and creating obstacles for six gigawatts of other planned offshore wind facilities in the Atlantic. If you have noticed that these fires are having an impact in your life, or if you're concerned about climate change, think about who you're going to vote for in November, because clearly the Trump administration has shown through their actions that they do not value a green future. Also, I'm not even going to get into how 40% of CAL FIRE's firefighters are prisoners and how the prison system is actual slave labor, but just keep that in the back of your mind as we're looking at the entire country burst into literal flames. Our next story is about the series of recorded interviews from February and March where Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward interviewed Donald Trump and they discussed coronavirus. Let's just go ahead and listen to the main part of the tapes that are circulating. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the uh, the virus, and I think he's going to have it in good shape, but, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's, uh, Indeed it, goes, it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air... You just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more for... deadly. This is five per... You know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and, and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So give me a moment of talking to somebody, going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of... Uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to oh my god the gravity is uh almost inexplicable and unexplainable well i think bob really to be honest with you sure i want you to i be. wanted to uh I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes. Eh? Because I don't want to create a panic. So there's not a whole lot to discuss here, as most of the tapes haven't been released, at least that I could find. It's just that portion that I just played for you. But this should be a big deal, because in this interview, Trump is saying some things and then says the exact opposite when speaking to the American public weeks or months after this interview took place. In one part, he says it's more deadly than the flu. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. But then he said this. It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for. And we'll essentially have a flu shot for this in a fairly quick manner. Yeah, go ahead. Also, in a tweet from March 9th, Trump said, quote, So last year, 37,000 American di Americans died from the common flu. Nothing is shut down. Life and the economy go on. Think about that. In more of the tapes on March 19th, 
Trump says it's not just old people, young people too. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and, and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So give me a... Compared to what he said in August. If you look at children, children are almost, and I would almost say definitely, but almost immune from this disease. So few, it's, they've got stronger... Hard to believe. I don't know how you feel about it, but they have much stronger immune systems than we do somehow for this. And they do it. They they don't have a problem. They just don't have a problem. And then the last main point is him saying that he is playing down the virus. Sure, I want you to. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. But here is the White House Press Secretary, Kayleigh McNanany, defending Donald Trump's actions. The president, by his own admission, in private, on the record, acknowledged the depth of this crisis and yet told the American people something very different. How is that, at its core, not an abject betrayal of the public trust? The president has always been clear-eyed with the American people. He was always clear-eyed about the lives we could lose. Uh, Again, from this podium, he acknowledged that this was serious back in March, that 100,000, 200,000 lives could be lost. Yes, see. What February 7th said is deadly stuff about coronavirus. In private, on the record. In public, though, February 28th, he says, one day, it's like a miracle, it will disappear. It's one one thing to, as as a public figure, not to try to incite panic. It's a very different thing, respectfully, uh, to lie and mislead the American people uh, about, no uh, was, about a crisis no one, that has claimed nearly 200,000 American no lives. No one is lying to the American people. One day COVID will go away. I think we can all hope for that day. How can the president bear no responsibility for the 200, almost 200,000 lives le- lost when he downplayed the virus initially and he knew that it, how contagious and deadly it was? I don't understand how that can... The president never downplayed the virus, once again. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. So now, on to some opinions. First of all, there's a difference between being calm and playing it down. Those are two completely different things. One can be calm while also providing important, life-saving information to the public about how the disease spreads, how deadly it is, and things of that nature. You can still be calm without inciting chaos while also informing the public. The point of all of those press conferences that he had over the big chunk of coronavirus is so that way he can apparently inform the people of what's going on and keep us updated. We're also in a new time in our country where public officials, mostly Donald Trump, can make one statement, then even if they're on the record, and then later claim that they never said such a thing. We saw this last week with the Atlantic article. Trump is on tape saying, I never liked him as much because I don't like losers, and that John McCain is not a war hero. I supported him for president. I raised a million dollars for him. It's a lot of money. I supported him. He lost. He let us down. But, you know, he lost. So I never liked him as much after that because I don't like losers. But, but Frank, he's Frank, let me get hero. to it. He's he hit me. Hero. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war Five hero. And a half years he's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. <laughs> Do you he's agree with hero. that? He's a war hero because he was captured. 
And then whenever he was confronted about this fact in relation to the Atlantic article that came out, he lies about the fact that he said those things and instead says that he would never disrespect anybody. And to think that I would make statements negative to our military and our fallen heroes when nobody's done what I've done with the budgets, with the military budgets, with getting pay raises for our military. It is a disgraceful situation. As far as John McCain is concerned, I was never a fan, and I will admit that openly. I disagreed with him on the endless wars. I disagreed with him with respect to the vets and the taking care of the VA. I wanted to do it a much different way, and I think it's proven to be a much more successful way when you look at the success we've had with the VA and with our vets, with choice and with accountability, all the things I've got. So I disagreed with John McCain, but I still respected him. And then, unfortunately, this news isn't shocking. It isn't surprising to anyone who's been listening. Donald Trump lies about hundreds of things every day. He lies about facts. He lies about himself and his business dealings. And once again, he's lying about coronavirus. Here's the thing, though. Sharing this story and sharing things like this on Facebook isn't going to fix our problem. Unfortunately, the majority of Donald Trump's supporters have shown time and time again that they are okay with someone who spreads disinformation, propaganda, and clearly, again, just blatant lies. The only way that we can hope to change the track that our politics are going in is to vote. So please do your part in November or sooner if you're mailing in your ballot and choose your pick wisely. And now on to our last subject for this week, which is the unfortunate death of Daniel Prude. So this is another death of a black man at the hands of police and it has gained national attention, but not a whole lot. I haven't actually seen it on my feed a lot. But it's coming to light now because last week the body cam footage of Daniel's murder was released to the press and this week the Rochester police chief and his deputy retired. Also, six other department leaders announced their resignations as well. So around 7 p.m. on March 22nd, Daniel was taken into custody for a mental health evaluation. For reasons unknown, he was released eight hours later. At 3 a.m. on the 23rd, Daniel's brother Joe called 911 to report that his brother had left the house. Body cam footage, at least the ones that I have seen, start when police have cuffed Daniel and found him. At the start of this video, Daniel, and throughout the whole thing, Daniel is completely naked, he's handcuffed, and he is sitting on the pavement. It's about 30 degrees outside and it is lightly snowing. The video then shows Prude begging officers for their guns because he, quote, needs it. Officers then place a spit hood over Daniel's head. Now, a spit hood is a mesh bag designed to contain the spread of COVID. It has a cinch around the neck area, and it kind of reminds me of like a ditty bag or a lingerie bag that you would put in the wash. So... Daniel demands that they remove the hood, and it is at this point that the officers push Daniel onto his stomach so that way he's face down in the asphalt. Based on what it saw, based on what I saw, it looked like 
Like I said, his face was straight down into the asphalt, not turned to the side or anything like that. Um, like his forehead, nose, chin, mouth, all that is being pushed into the sidewalk. One officer is pushing down onto Daniel's head and the other is pressing onto his upper back and shoulder area. As this is happening, Daniel, whose voice is now muffled at this point, cries out, trying to kill me? Okay, stop it. I need it. I need it. And then he begins to cry and whimper. After about three minutes, Daniel stops moving and an officer says, my man, you puking? And he notices water coming out of Daniel's mouth. Another officer feels Daniel and remarks that he is, quote, pretty cold. Keep in mind, this whole time, Daniel has been completely naked in snowing weather. Daniel is then brought to a hospital where he's pronounced brain dead upon arrival. He stays on life support for the next seven days, and then he passes away when he is removed from life support on March 30th. Autopsy reports do show a low level of PCP in Daniel's system, and acute PCP intoxication is listed as a complication in his death, but homicide caused by the complications of asphyxia and the setting of physical restraint is the official cause of his death. Rochester PD conducted an investigation and then cleared the officers of any wrongdoing. After the family released the body cam footage of the incident on September 2nd, Seven officers were then suspended with pay. And then just a few days ago, on September 8th, the police chief, Laron Singletary, and his deputy stepped down, as well as six other department leaders. In a letter of resignation, Laron says, quote, As a man of integrity, I will not sit idly by while outside entities attempt to destroy my character. The mischaracterization and politicization of actions that I took after being informed of Mr. Prude's death is not based on facts and is not what I stand for. So, now on to opinion time. First of all, this is exactly why we as regular average citizens need to keep speaking up and protesting for Black Lives Matter. It's important that we continue to share these stories of individuals who are wrongly killed by police because our actions directly impact how seriously our government looks into these cases. These steps forward of officers being put on leave and resigning have only happened because people have spoken out and shared the video of Daniel's death. I also don't really understand why officers felt the need to pin Daniel in the first place. Watching the video, he is complying the entire time. Though he's clearly distressed, he's seated, he's handcuffed, he's not trying to run away or anything like that. And according to some other sources, anytime he's asked to sit down or to be handcuffed or anything like that, he always says, yes, sir. This point just goes to show that it doesn't matter if a black man is complying with police in the United States, he will still be killed. He wasn't resisting arrest. He didn't have a weapon on him. He wasn't attacking anyone. The 911 calls weren't even about him being dangerous. It was about a mental health check and getting him home. Furthermore, we love to discuss mental health issues when it's a white person problem, right? But if a black person has a mental health issue and clearly needs help, please just kill them instead. This is a perfect example of why we should reallocate police funds to mental health services. 
a social worker, or EMT, or really anyone with more training than police could have handled this situation better, and Daniel could be alive today. I also don't understand why in the video he's just sitting on the ground naked. Where's the police car? Did they not have any sort of space blanket or jacket to keep him warm? I know that New Yorkers take the cold in the beginning of winter and winter itself very seriously. Like when I was on tour, I learned that if it's cold out, you always should have like hand warmers in your car, your coat, snowshoes, some snacks, water, maybe even a blanket. Like you just have those things with you in case something goes wrong, you know, you can be prepared. So why do none of these first responders have any of these things on them? Do they really not have anything that they could have put over this guy to keep him warm? Why is the first time Daniel gets any sort of medical attention is when liquid starts to come out of his mouth? Like it said, he was on PCP at the time. So, I mean, officers don't know what's going on. He could be overdosing. He could be sick. He's clearly walking around naked. Something's wrong there. But instead of getting him medical attention, they're pinning him to the ground and waiting until he stops moving. I don't know why an EMT wasn't called ahead of time, why an EMT wasn't the person responding in the first place. It's just once again showing the constant failures of our police system in America. Black lives matter all the time in every situation. Black lives matter even if they have mental health issues. Black lives matter if they are on drugs. Black lives matter when they're naked on a street at 3 a.m. Black lives do not matter conditionally. And not only should police not be judged during an executioner, but in this case, there wasn't even anything to judge. Daniel was naked and in mental distress. Police knew this. That's why they were called. He wasn't hiding a gun anywhere. He wasn't breaking into people's homes. Daniel's life mattered, but apparently not to police. Also, I can't think of a more vulnerable individual, and I can't think of one reason why Daniel should have died that night, and then also I can't think of one reason why these officers should not be charged for the murder of Daniel Prude. I'm tired of qualified immunity. No other field has this. Doctors don't have qualified immunity. Pilots don't have qualified immunity. This idea that police departments have to defend their officers, even if they do something wrong, is being misused and I think is part of the reason that we're having such a hard time getting any lasting change. And then also, why do we keep accepting this bad apple story that is being told to us? Like I said earlier, other occupations aren't allowed to have bad apples. Why are we okay with this narrative that it's okay for police to be bad apples? Also, it's not a few bad apples, it's entire police departments. We saw the same thing happen in Buffalo, where officers shoved that older man to the ground and he sustained brain damage. Two of the officers were suspended, but 57 officers resigned because of that. The same thing is happening here. Two officers directly killed Daniel Prude, but nine resigned. It's not one bad apple. It's a systematic issue that began when the modern-day prison system was invented to enslave free black people. A lot of people trying to discredit stories like Daniel will often say, like, where's the whole picture? We're not getting the whole picture. 
This is the whole picture. Our current system of policing, the prison system, the lack of mental health care and drug rehab opportunities in the United States is the whole picture. The whole picture is that our government isn't set up to help black people. It has been set up to enslave and punish them for whatever reason a white person deems is appropriate. Are they naked in the street? It's justifiable by death. Is it a fraudulent $20 bill? Maybe justifiable by death. Are they jogging down the street? It's justifiable by death. Are they wearing a hoodie? It's justifiable by death. In America, but only if you're black. If you want to know what you can do to help, Daniel's family has a GoFundMe page. They're trying to raise $1 million right now, but only have uh, around 80000 currently. There is also a colorofchange.org petition to demand the officers who murdered Daniel Prude to be arrested and charged, and that also the Rochester PD ensures mental health professionals respond to mental health crises instead of police. Both of the links for those are in the description. In summary, just please use your voice for change. Silence takes the side of the oppressor. Our government has clearly shown that they won't take responsibility if they're not pressured by us, the people, to do so. Talk to family members about how best they can handle mental health situations and check to see if your local community has a crisis response organization that is not the police. Here in Florida, in Escambia, Santa Rosa, Okaloosa, and Walton County, there is the Baptist Healthcare Mobile Response Team that focuses on treatment for trauma while ensuring public safety. According to their website, you should call the MRT when a person is experiencing a behavioral health crisis and willing to seek assistance, a person is expressing suicidal thoughts, or a person is experiencing severe stress that results in a significant decline of functioning. That number is 866-517-7766. If you or someone you know is in mental health distress, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 1-800-274-TALK or 1-800-274-8225. Today's question of the week is what is slash how did America adopt a two-party system? So when America was founded, a lot of our ideas of a modern government came from England. Alexander Hamilton, who we'll discuss in a little more detail later, used a lot of ideas from the British when helping to establish our United States government. George Washington believed that political parties would be damaging to American society and needed to be avoided. Yet the politics of the 1790s was dominated by the arguments of two distinct political groups, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. So... If the founder of our country didn't like the two-party system, how did it come into place today? So Alexander Hamilton was the leader of the Federalists. He believed that the United States should have a strong central government, a treasury, a national army, and a strong political executive who represented the interests of all states. Like I mentioned earlier, Hamilton based his principles on the British system of governing. Thomas Jefferson was a leader of the Anti-Federalists. He believed that a central treasury and an army would give the government too much power. He also believed a strong president would essentially be like a king. He was very distrustful of the British, which was part of the reason he wanted to stay away from this system. 
Thomas Jefferson wanted political power to reside with the states, not the federal government. It's also important to note that Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner and was from the South, and states' rights would be imperative for the South to maintain slavery. When Thomas Jefferson was elected as president in 1800, the Federalist Party essentially disappeared. His presidency was marked and started a lot of mistrust of the government, partly because Aaron Burr, his vice president, killed Alexander Hamilton. Newspapers also started gaining popularity around this time, and this also sparked discussions and arguments about the future of the United States. So that's how it came to be in America. Basically, it's always been states' rights versus federal rights, and that's kind of where we are still today. So then I wondered, is the two-party system a universal issue? Do other countries have the two-party system issues that we're having in the United States? And if so, why? So upon doing some digging, I discovered that the two-party system is actually a side effect of country's electoral system, not the other way around. This has to do with Duverger's Law, which we'll discuss more about later on. So, the first electoral system that we're going to talk about is the plurality system. The plurality system is what we have in the United States. Essentially, the candidate with the highest number of votes wins. This is also called the the first-past-the-post system. It is the second most common electoral system in the world, and it came mostly from British and American colonies, which is why it's so popular. Some advantages of the plurality system is that it promotes centricism, political stability, economic growth, simpler governing, less likely to have government stalls and fractitiousness like hunk parliaments, and it's a simple voting system. Some disadvantages is that it leads to a two-party system, which makes it harder for independents or third parties to have a say, like we're seeing now. It only represents the majority it is less competitive, and it leads to a lot of voter apathy and encourages partisanship. It wouldn't be fair to discuss the plurality system without also discussing Duverger's law. Duverger's law essentially states that single-ballot, simple-majority systems favor a two-party system, whereas second-ballot and proportional representation favors multi-party systems, and we're going to talk about other systems in a second as well. He says that the main two mechanisms that lead to fewer parties are that smaller parties are disincentivized to form because they have a greater difficulty of winning seats or representation, and then also that voters are wary of voting for a smaller party whose policies they might favor more, but they don't want to waste their votes. Therefore, they gravitate towards one of the other main parties. We are seeing that happen right now in the United States quite a bit. Because only the plurality winner gets representation, the smaller parties are often left without any seats or representation, even if the smaller party receives a large portion of votes. For example, in 1992, Ross Perot's presidential candidacy received zero electoral votes even though he received 19% of the popular vote. One would argue that even though he didn't win, those policies that he was pushing for should at least be considered or represented in some way because he did receive such a large percent of the popular vote. Duverger's law also says that a third party can only feasibly enter the arena if the third party can exploit 
the mistakes of one of the other major two parties, like how the Republican Party overturned the Whig Party after the Civil War. So essentially, one cannot have a plurality system without Duverger's law taking effect. So what other methods can we use to elect our officials that would avoid such partisanship? The other two main systems of voting are the majoritarian system and the proportional system. So with the majoritarian system, candidates have to receive a majority of votes to be elected. There are two main methods to these types of elections. One is ranked voting and then the two or more round election system of voting. With ranked voting, such as how they use in Australia and Papua New Guinea, if no candidate receives a majority of the vote in the first round, then the second preferences of the lowest ranked candidate are then added to the totals. This is repeated until a candidate achieves over 50% of the number of valid votes. If not all voters use their preference votes, then the count may continue until two candidates remain, at which point the winner is the one with the most votes. Essentially, these voters rank a first, second, third, and so on, so that way if their first pick isn't chosen for whatever reason, their vote is not wasted. So that is the ranked voting system. Next is the two-round system. This is the most common presidential election system in the world, being used in 88 countries. Essentially, if no candidate achieves a majority in the first round, a second round is then held. Normally, the second round is limited to the top two candidates from the first round. A form of this is also called an exhaustive ballot, which is not limited to two rounds, but has an unlimited amount of rounds. Each new one eliminates the last placed candidate from the previous round. Since this can take a while, it's not normally used in major popular elections, but rather to elect speakers of parliament in many different countries. So that was the majoritarian system. Now we're moving on to the proportional system. This is the most widely used electoral system for national legislators with parliaments of over 80 countries elected by this system. This isn't really a good format for presidential elections and is more for representative voting like parliament, a house of representatives, congress, things like that. This involves voters voting for a list of candidates proposed by a party. Depending on the country, how seats are assigned is different and they use different formulas, but the basic gist is that if 40% of voters elect party A, then 40% of the seats would go to party A. This allows for smaller parties to still get a say, even if they don't get majority rule. This is contrasted to our American system, where if party A gets 40% of the votes and that's not the majority, they would not receive any say at all. Instead, it would be the winner-takes-all method. In conclusion, if we don't like our two-party system and the partisanism that is happening in the United States currently, instead of focusing on changing the Republicans or the Democrats or voting third party, we probably need to change the way that we elect our officials instead. So that's the two-party system. Now, I want to know what you think. Do you like our current system of elections? Do you know anyone in other countries and like the way they do things? Did you learn something new or maybe even have a suggestion for a future question of the week? Feel free to leave any questions and comments on the YouTube comment section of this video or on my Instagram at letsbebetterpod or email me at letsbebetterpod at gmail.com. 
As always, the links to my sources and socials are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars whenever that comes available. It would help me out a lot. Thank you again for listening and have a great week.